0: Chapter 9, The Illusion of Change. The opening quote for this chapter is from Mahatma Gandhi. Be the change you want to see in the world. One of the most interesting things about change is that we don't know what it is. Sure, we think we do, especially when we do or do not want it. But that doesn't mean we actually know what it is any more than the person who says the only thing that doesn't change is change. As it turns out, Change has nothing to do with what changes, and has everything to do with what doesn't. Let me explain. Most of us have a love-hate relationship with change, regardless of where we seek to find it. We love the promise of it when things seem bad, and hate the inevitability of it when things seem good. But in either scenario do we understand how our beliefs govern the promise of change in our lives, or why when we are young we want to be older, if single, to have a partner, when poor, to be rich, if ugly, to be pretty. We think, when I'm older, partnered, rich, and beautiful, then I will be happy, content, and successful. But once we achieve those things, we discover it's not as expected because we fail to examine the merits of the beliefs that drove us to seek change in the first place. Feeling confused by this, we wonder why obtaining the objects of our desires don't make us happy. Or if they do, it's not for very long. We think, is the problem in the thing that no longer satisfied me? Is it in me? Do I need to reach higher? Or we tell ourselves that we should be happy because we have achieved everything we wanted. In not finding such strategies to work, we paste a smile on our face and grit our teeth, telling ourselves that we'll fake it until we make it. There's a story that illustrates this very well. It's about a man who's complaining to the bartender in his local pub. He says that he has had seven marriages and as many divorces each time to a different woman who in the beginning seemed perfect in every way, beautiful, accomplished, intelligent, sensual, everything you could want in a wife. And yet over time, he found that each had the same fatal flaw that he couldn't tolerate. Now broke, single, and confused, he still could not figure out what had gone wrong. Then the bartender who has been silently listening to his customer story asked, Did you ever consider that their fatal flaw was you? The point of the story is that even as we take steps towards what we think will make us happy, successful and healthy, doing so without an understanding of the hidden beliefs that have caused our sadness, failures and ill health in the first place, only serves to strengthen their expression in our lives. This is why when we feel sad we judge ourselves for being that way at the same time we look for ways to get happy without taking the time to consider how our beliefs caused our sadness in the first place. Instead we immediately run for their opposites without considering how our beliefs are creating a no-win scenario where we are damned if we do and damned if we don't. This is because ignorance of the law, as you believe, so shall it be done unto you, does not excuse you from the effects of what you believe. So when the guy decided that his new wife was not as expected without realizing that his problem resided in his beliefs, he could only arrive at the same outcome 100% of the time. This is not to say that a desire to better our circumstances is bad, for if we're hungry and want an apple, we don't beat ourselves up about the fact that we're hungry and what it says about us that we don't have an apple. We probably don't ascribe much meaning to it at all and simply do what needs to be done to get the apple. But if we don't have a place to live, a lover, a job, a car, or any money, what drives us to acquire them beyond the fact of their necessity is what we think it says about us when we lack them we think I'm unworthy, lazy, unacceptable, unlovable, or stupid. And it is that right there where belief becomes both the motivation for the changes sought and what continues to haunt us for actually needing it, not only as we pursue those things we think will free us, but even after we have achieved what we thought we wanted. You see, the belief in the need for change has nothing to do with what we have or don't have. It's only the description of the relationship we currently have between our idea of ourselves and our world, which is where we make meaning in life. So what changes the meaning and what doesn't? That's the question. So why does achieving the object of our desire fulfill us only for a moment, hour, day, or week? Because as we strive to achieve, we do so under the burden of the belief that tells us we can't be happy, peaceful, or successful until we've won the goal. In effect, we use our idea of the goal to deny our happiness, joy, and contentment until it is achieved. It is always delayed until later. Then when we do succeed, we mistakenly equate the change we were seeking with the joy or happiness found when in truth, it has nothing to do with what has just been gotten. All that has happened is that we have stopped striving long enough to allow ourselves to be, if only for the moment, and it is simply in being and not becoming that we find our fulfillment. But we overlook this again and again believing and hoping and expecting that when we achieve the next big thing, our next fix, then all will be okay. But it never stays for long because the source of our unhappiness is not in the things we want to change, but in our beliefs about ourselves which structure our relationships in the first place. Unfortunately, in not seeing this, we move from each person, place, or thing to the next until the time comes when we understand that wanting change is only evidence of the need for it, but never the place for it. This is the illusion of change. In failing to see this my entire life, I strove to become smart, handsome, popular, athletic, spiritual, and creative, while within me lived the belief that I really wasn't any of those things. If I'd possessed those qualities, there would never have been a need to achieve them. So no matter how successful I may have appeared on the outside, on the inside, I harbored the lie that told me I was not. Or as Ted once said, people who act like they are beautiful, successful, and fearless are constantly afraid of being found out for being ugly, a failure, and a fraud. This was why I took great pains to show up in a particular way, but did so without dealing with the fallacy of the beliefs that drove me in the first place. Was it any wonder that I failed at my charade? Finally, when I had spent and exhausted myself, I turned my attention to that which existed independent of any belief I could have, the one thing that never changes, and has no need to, being who I am. Do you remember the movie Groundhog Day? Bill Murray plays the part of an arrogant, insensitive, and self-centered weatherman who gets stuck in a repeating loop of time while doing a story on the annual Groundhog Day celebration in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. During his time there, roughly 40 days, He is doomed to relive the same day over and over again, despite trying everything he could to change the nature of his circumstances, manipulation, escape, crime, even several forms of suicide. But each morning he wakes up exactly where he did the day before. It's always Groundhog Day. First, he's incredulous that things seem the same. Then he becomes indignant that others are clueless to his eerie case of deja vu. Next, he indulges himself in every sensual experience he can imagine. Sex, food, money safe in the knowledge that no matter what he does today, tomorrow will begin exactly as it has so many times before. Gradually, he realizes that nothing he does makes any difference in his life and resigns himself to his potentially eternal dilemma. But then he discovers he can make a difference in the lives of others. Determined to do good, he keeps to a strict schedule so that each day he can catch the boy who falls from a tree, practice the Heimlich maneuver on the man choking in a restaurant, and try to save the old homeless guy from his timely death. From these things, a sense of purpose and satisfaction begins to grow, where before it was merely another angle he could play. Finally, he begins to cherish each moment and serve those in it without any agenda or hope of escape, and it is this relationship to the true nature of change that ultimately frees him from reliving the mistakes and addictions of his past. This little film, while largely amusing, is actually a parody of how we are all stuck in our own personal Groundhog Day. Like Murray, we are lost to the cycle that goes on forever without delivering us to the things we really want, which for each individual is ultimately founded upon the ability of simply being who I am or who we are, yet caught in the conundrum to chase the things that change. We know neither what change is nor where it takes place. It is this truth which affects how we think about the problems we observe in the world, and of course, how we consider those present in our own lives. Confused, we believe that our problems and their solutions are separate from us, that they exist somewhere out there. And as we externalize our life, we fall into the habit of presuming the cause is due to another's fault, and is almost always dependent on someone else to fix. The truth is, we just don't get it. The whole world, good and bad, is but a mirror reflecting what's already inside of us. This is the reality of what Thich Nhat Hanh was speaking when he said, to heal the environment, we must first heal the environmentalist. In not seeing the reality of this, we are unable to divorce ourselves from our concepts about the promise of change. This has led to our business of trading in, be it a person, place, or thing to make us happy. We change everything we can think of on the outside of ourselves, all in the hopes of getting the experience on the inside that we think will provide us with what we want from life. It does not matter whether it comes in the form of a better car, house, spouse, or job. Not that these things in themselves are bad in any way, but they are incapable of bringing us what we seek. It shouldn't be any surprise then that after some time has passed, be it a moment, or in my case 30 years, that we find ourselves unhappy or exactly where we started yet again and we wonder, how is it possible that so little progress has been made after all the effort we've exerted? Why does this keep happening to me, we ask, and when will my life change? Until we question the belief that fuels our desire for change, we will continue to miss what it is, where it takes place, and who causes it, dooming ourselves to trade in, trade up, and shop till we drop as we perpetuate the illusion of changing what appears to be out there. Anybody who knows me can tell you that I've never been a person who ever cared much for shopping. And yet I also fell prey to this vicious cycle when finding it difficult to plot my course towards being who I was and having what I wanted. I too kept trying to change what was on the outside, hoping I would suddenly arrive at being who I am. But the who part kept eluding me. The having part, however, was something tangible that I could practice, and I did, by sensing into the content of my experience to discern whether I wanted the new suit, shoes, vacation, wristwatch, gym membership, or skis. I allowed everything to become subject to the process of feeling into what I could know about the things I wanted. Next, I would take steps towards acquiring them in the same way I had learned to introduce the content of my experience into the communications process. In this sense, the dialogue was with the environment and towards the things in it which I gave myself permission to acquire. Did having any of these things help me to be who I am? Not a bit. But for a time, the experiment provided me with the illusion of change until I realized that we always end up where we start. By 1984, I had spent more than a dozen years meditating and attending spiritual retreats. I lived with my wife and our daughter in Scotts Valley, just up the road from an ex-wife of one of Apple's founders. We lived on an acre of land from which we could see Santa Cruz Bay, and I worked at a job I was good at that made no sense to my life. Disappointment and masked anger set the tone of my daily experience as I drove towards the freeway on my way to work. Many were the mornings where, upon rounding the corner out of sight of oncoming cars, houses and pedestrians, I would scream out at the top of my lungs the frustration that had become my life. I did not feel enlightened, or centered, or happy. I felt like crap. I was a fraud, filled with a seething revulsion for myself, a curious condition for a long time spiritual practitioner. Despite how I felt on the inside, I imagined my life looked pretty good from the outside, which only served to exacerbate the lie I could not escape. I was supposed to be a spiritual person. I was supposed to have my life together by now. Can you imagine me giving lectures on the benefits of meditation when I was such a train wreck, who thought everyone else had their act together and I was the only one who was such a screw-up? So in struggling to find my way to the life I thought I wanted, I began looking for clues in the behaviors of employees, executives, and co-workers to see how they too were pretending or failing, and if they were then at least I wouldn't be the only one and maybe I could relax. With this intention, I observed how people would accept a new job with the promise of a better future, only to be out of work when the funding ran out. I observed VPs, CEOs, and VCs employ tactics of fear, overtly or subtly, to pressure those in their charge to work longer, harder, better. To me, this seemed to be a waste of human and financial resources that only motivated a system that was designed to serve those at the top of the financial food chain, the venture community. Sure, a few people made money, but the majority did not. Most would float from one startup to another as they sought better working conditions, projects, compensations, or responsibilities. Many acted as if their pot of gold lay just around the next quarter or through the next market window, working themselves and their organizations to the bone without realizing the nature and purpose of change that operated within their endeavors. Instead, each chased their version of success by trading up their jobs the same way one did with beliefs, spouses, houses, and cars, all the while believing that this time it would be different. In the midst of this, recruiters like me made good money, placing people in startups and then recruiting them out when they fell apart, safe on the outskirts of the industry we served. We remained free to choose when and what to work on, and while being on the outside offered a type of freedom. It also required us to prove ourselves with each new client. It didn't matter if we had recently completed a successful search for the same type of candidate this new client wanted. The corporate officers, awash in their sense of distinction regarding the newness of their technology, also wanted search consultants that specialized in their unique niche, as if they were unaware that a good recruiter could find a needle in anyone's haystack. Being required to demonstrate my value with every single new client only served to exacerbate the disdain I felt for the spiritual vacuum that masqueraded as my perfect life. It was because of this, among other things, that I sought solace in having what I wanted, in the things only money could buy. So, when the impulse arose to buy a new champagne metallic 380 SE Mercedes-Benz, there was nothing standing between the impulse and my ability to fulfill it. So I bought the car, and the new house, and the new furniture, carpets, hardwood floors, landscaping, catered dinner parties, and a baby blue Benz for my wife. Eventually, this practice caught up with me and I was no longer able to live within my means. So I began seeking an escape from the system in which I had become mired. I wrestled constantly with the belief that I would never make enough money to retire or escape, that I never wanted to be in the world of business in the first place, and was trained for nothing except meditation. Of course, I was working to increase the success of our firm, hoping the profits would create more ease in my life, but this was not forthcoming. Every time I trained another group of recruiters, it was at the expense of my billings, leaving me in debt to the company and needed to play catch-up every nine months. To make matters worse, as the members of my team became more successful, each navigated to a role that served them best. For some, this meant threatening to leave if they were not made a manager or given a larger piece of the business. Each time this happened, our CEO would carve up my group to make a manager of the high billers who threatened to leave if their demands were not met. At one point, I had a group of 17 people reporting to me, and in one day it was reduced to three, as others inherited the fruits of my efforts. Even though over a dozen years had now passed, nothing had really changed. I still didn't know how to do my life. Here I had been doing all the right things, but was failing at everything, Frustrated with my job and my spirituality, I frequently found my mind turning to the idea of moving to Fairfield, Iowa, to the meditation community that was home to Marishi International University, hoping that life in the spiritual community might be the salvation for the perpetual dead end that had become my life. Every day the thought would hammer my mind, move to Fairfield, move to Fairfield, move to Fairfield. But I never took it seriously until five days after I bought that shiny new Mercedes-Benz. Coming down the hill towards Los Gatos, as I had so many times before, I noticed that the traffic was backed up for miles ahead. Instinctively, I take the Lark Avenue exit to find a less congested route to work. As my car comes off the freeway, I come to a stop at the top of the ramp, waiting my turn to merge with the traffic coming from my left. In front of me, there's a line of cars waiting to turn left and go north on 880. As I wait my turn to enter the flow of traffic, the guy in the car at the head of the line waves me through. Gratefully, I accept his courtesy, enter the flow of traffic, and am suddenly blindsided by a Datsun 280Z that has swerved wide around the line. As our cars meet, I hear no sound, feel no force, or sense anything besides the silent pirouette of our collision. When my car finally comes to a stop, my first thought is, that's it, I'm moving to Fairfield. A few weeks later, as if on cue, I receive a call from one of the men I'd met during the advanced course I attended. Prior to losing my job with New Homes magazine, he tells me that Marishi is asking practitioners of the TM City program to relocate to Fairfield in order to participate in a group peace practice designed to avert the signs of war and destruction that would otherwise come. Hearing this, I need no convincing. Everything that had been happening in my life only served to convince me that the world of business was destitute and soulless and that the only wealth worth acquiring was spiritual. And now I have been called to spiritual duty. Providing the means to escape my frustrations. My wife and I decide to answer the call Lying in bed that night I calculate how I could afford to make the move by selling our cars and house to retire our debt Thinking that the lower cost of living would permit a more comfortable and stress-free existence I was hopeful that the move would provide the opportunity to immerse myself in my spiritual practice as the primary focus of life also we would be able to raise our children in the company of those who shared our goals, free from the daily stresses that the Silicon Valley of California tolerated as being normal. In the morning before going to work, I arranged for my flight, car, rental, and lodgings to explore our relocation. When I arrive at the office later that day, I confide my future plans with another TM teacher and longtime friend that I'd brought into the business at the beginning of our expansion, who had recently become a manager and partner in the company. Being familiar with my frustrations, he says he'd wondered what would compel me to make the move. I tell him I want to do as Marishi has asked and plan to open a branch office of our company in Fairfield. He offers to support my decision as a friend, spiritual colleague, and officer of the company. Later that day, Ted calls me into his office. As I enter, I find my longtime friend is already there. Ted begins by telling me he wished I had consulted with him before I'd made travel plans to Fairfield. Next, he tells me they have been going over the situation and they have decided I cannot be successful working out of state with our client base in Silicon Valley and are not willing to open a branch office in Fairfield. Ted continues by telling me that should I follow through with my plans to relocate effective immediately, the commissions that I earned from the group that I trained and managed would be given to my friend and I would be relieved of all responsibilities. He offers a final consolation saying that I can stay and run my own desk until I'm ready to leave. Completely shocked and unable to believe what I'm hearing, I look to my friend for the support he had promised in the morning, only to find he is not looking at me but at his feet. Is this true that you agree with this? I ask to which he mutters, yes, without taking his eyes from the floor. Reeling from the implications of his betrayal, I go to my office to think. The thing is, I'm fully committed to making the move, but given the fact that I'm already deeply in debt... Going through with my plans means I will immediately forfeit $4,000 per month, a third of my income. The only option before me is to work harder to compensate for the loss with an increase in my personal billings. But I am so distraught by the turn of events that I begin to suffer a series of stomach aches and headaches that diminish my ability to perform. Before this, I was the guy everyone went to for recruiting advice, and now I endure the humiliation of being the office outcast. In a matter of weeks, I lose so much weight that at almost 6'2", I am unable to tip the scales over 150 pounds. Bewildered by my circumstances, the most difficult thing to swallow was the fact that both the expansion and success of this company had been the result of my vision and efforts. I'd been the one who'd convinced Ted to let me hire and train other meditators against his better judgment. I'd been the best man at his wedding for God's sake. But the biggest shock was that I thought we'd shared a spiritual bond. Instead. I've been blindsided by those who were supposed to be my friends, spiritual colleagues, and co-workers in much the same way that 280Z had totaled the front end of my car. Nine stressful months later, we succeed in selling our house, pack the movers' truck, and board our plane to Iowa. When we arrive at the Cedar Rapids Municipal Airport, we collect our bags and leave the terminal to find our car where the movers had left it for us. As we walk into the muggy afternoon air, I have a premonition. You've just made the biggest mistake of your life. Brace yourself. You're going to have to make the best of this. But I don't say a word to my wife as we walk across the parking lot towards our car. All I can think is, what have I done? While waiting for the house we purchased to become available, we stay at the ranch motel just outside of town that is flanked on one side by McDonald's and a John Deere sales lot on the other. On Saturdays, We drive to gatherings of the TM community at the MIU campus, hoping to find a friendly or familiar face to placate our fears that we made the wrong decision in coming. Early on, we see the guy who'd called us nine months before with Marishi's request. We walk up to him and comically announce that the Bear family has arrived. He looks up from his casual conversation with the person next to him, says hello, followed by a few words, and then returns to his previous discussion. All the enthusiasm he originally offered in encouraging us to come share in this idyllic community seemed completely forgotten. Here we had come to help the world by living, meditating, and working in this spiritual community, hoping to bring about peace on earth, and this guy couldn't give us the time of day. It was almost as if he neither knew nor remembered me. So there I was standing in an alien Midwestern landscape, and it dawns on me that his descriptions of our new community might have been mere selling points and that his job had ended the moment he'd hung up the phone nine months ago. I'd been expecting utopia, yet upon witnessing his behavior, my wife and I realized that we must have made a huge mistake, one that we did not have the financial means to correct. We were stuck. Doing our best to settle in, we become familiar with the nuances of the community, finding that the rhetoric of love, belonging, and abundance, which was on the lips of many, did not always translate so well into action. In retrospect, I might have had a clue about this from the treatment I received from my co-workers. Hell, I should have known from the truth of my own life that doing a spiritual practice did not necessarily have anything to do with belonging, honesty, or integrity. It's not a package deal. Instead, life is a choice we get to make moment to moment. We settle into the community as best we can and begin to make friends, only to discover that titles, cliques, wealth, and associations routinely ostracize many as they do in any small town. Not only was there a schism between the local population and the transplanted TMers, but among their ranks as well. I had turned to my community of practice for a sense of belonging, meaning, and protection, only to find an arrogantly cliquish, fear-based community that espoused spiritual principles, but for the most part lacked the ability to live them. In retrospect, I realized that, like myself, everyone was doing the best they could, and that the perceived issues, the fractured sense of community and the fear, were not realities separate from myself. In fact, I was to find that all of these things were only the projections of my relationship with myself and had nothing to do with the lives or lies of others. Everything I despised about being there was but a reflection of all the frustrations I'd harbored about myself when living and working in the Bay Area. It was all me, but I could not see it at the time. Escaping Silicon Valley then was no escape at all. Leaving had only served to sever me from the distractions that kept me from noticing what was already true about myself. In the meantime, my wife and I privately bemoan our predicament while contemplating an exit strategy that never materializes. We did not have the money to leave due to the fact that our California house had sold for only slightly more than the mortgages against it and because we lost a third of our income prior to the move. Doing what we could to make the best of the situation, I set up my home office, resumed recruiting, and settled into the routine of doing life, which includes a twice-daily group meditation practice. It is those periods that I relish most because of the rest they provide. Unaware of how fatigued I'd become, many times I would close my eyes only to find that two hours had flown by. If nothing else at the time, I was grateful to live in a place that afforded me regular access to such a profound practice of rest. As I become more familiar with the meditating community, I discovered that the high rate of divorce was leaving many single mothers financially ill-equipped to support themselves, Thinking this was not right, I designed a program to direct a portion of the profits from local meditator-owned businesses to those in need. Looking for an appropriate name for the program, I settled on wealth share, as an evolution of the concept of welfare, where the wealth of the community is shared amongst its members. After living in Fairfield for two years, however, I too experienced a drop in my own income and find that months would go by where I'm unable to make ends meet. I fall so far behind in paying my bills that every time I earned any money, all the funds were committed before the check even cleared the account. With bill collectors calling and foreclosure notices piling up, I'm unable to find my way out. As bankruptcy looms quite real on the horizon, my life spins towards a major meltdown because to me, bankruptcy was the ultimate failure. Each day, I faithfully attend group practice, hoping my spiritual dedication will save me from the realities of the world. After returning home, I go to my office to work. Once there, I wallow in waves of guilt and self-loathing, terrified of what would happen if I didn't make enough money. Where would I go? Where would I live? What would I do? I pick up the phone to get something going. As I start dialing, I feel into what I will say just as I have a thousand times before. But before I can finish, I break down into a sobbing mess, and overwhelmed by waves of shame and futility, hang up the phone. After numerous failed attempts, and not being in a state of mind that is conducive to work, I retreat to my office couch, only to find my mind is unrestrained in its tendency to revisit all the mistakes I must have made that led me to this moment. Again and again, my mind cycles from fear to guilt and back again, in the midst of which there grows the gnawing doubt that I'd ever been successful at anything. Clearly, I must have been lucky in the past. My luck had simply run out, just as my stepfather had prophesied it would. In an act of desperation, I call my parents to ask if they could loan me some money until I get back on my feet. My stepfather declined, stating with disdain that I have brought this upon myself and that he would rather make the loan to my older brother because at least he would kill himself to pay us back. Feeling abandoned, I returned to my couch and remained there for weeks. Then, one day during meditation, after months of failed efforts to escape the abyss that had become my world, an insight illuminates the source of my troubles. I am shown the nature of my mind, the mechanics of my thoughts, emotions, the sense of knowing, and the practice of believing as they pertain to the present moment. I don't know where the insight comes from. It just shows up like a download for a computer program. For until that day, I had never heard or thought about the present moment. I didn't even know what it was or where it existed, but now understood there was more to my experience of life than what I was presently aware Despite being overwhelmed by waves of guilt, fear and doubt, I am able to notice that feelings of guilt come when I'm regretting the past and feelings of fear come when I'm worrying about the future. So what do I do? Well, rather than simply allowing my mind to wander aimlessly, I make myself think about lots of past regrets so I can notice how that feels and then make myself think about lots of future worries to notice how that feels. And it is through this exercise that I stumble upon the fact that the only time I feel a sense of solace or peace is during those brief instances when my mind has just passed the edge of a thought about the past and just before entering the territory of the future. I ask myself, what is the present moment and how do I find it? Could it be the refuge in which I could escape this madness? In an effort to find it, I close my eyes to scan the content of my experience. I notice the thoughts and emotions that move through my mind, the pressure of my butt against the couch, and the movement of my breath as it passes through my body. I observe all of this as I wonder where the present moment resides. Then it comes to me that at least my body must live in the present, and so must my breath, because clearly I am unable to breathe the past or future breath, only the present one. So... I practiced noticing the sensations in my body alongside the flow of breath as some subtle sense of relief begins to grow. Where before thoughts and emotions came tumbling through my mind, submerging and tossing me about in waves of fear, guilt, and doubt, now at least a few instances began to emerge where some elusive peace could be known. Having been inundated in waves of mental distraction and emotional disassociation for so long, I needed to see how, when and where peace emerged. Sitting on my couch, I make myself observe the activity of my mind until I notice how incessantly every single impulse of it compelled, begged, and bade me to leave the precarious perch of the present moment for the past or future. I think to myself, well, this is interesting.